would like to begin today by looking at uh, a topic which has been a source of uh, much academic discussion, many different views, theories, opinions. That is the question, what is it that makes us truly human? Or what, what is it that distinguishes us from animals or beings of other realms? You say, what is it uniquely that our uh, humanity decides? And uh, there have been so many answers to this question over the years. Um, opposable thumbs seems to be a favorite answer. But um, the, the answers I would like to, to offer you to consider today um, is, is slightly different to that. Now, I'd like you to observe that in many ways, as human beings, we can say we are inferior um, to animals. And that might seem a bit shocking, perhaps, but you think about it, um, so many creatures have better eyesight than human beings. So many creatures have a better sense of smell. Some insects can uh, detect the smells of the um, over four or five kilometers, for instance. Um, many creatures have better sense of hearing, and so on. So in terms of the senses and our physical um, capabilities, they're not particularly distinguished um, in the world. We can see that many creatures live with their parents, uh, receive an education from their parents for a very short time. Some even uh, can be measured in hours some in days, some in weeks. But human beings, we um, are not such quick learners, and many of the things that other creatures pick up as a matter of instinct, we have to learn, and often in a uh, rather painstaking way. But it's here I would argue that our true humanity resides. We are learners. We have the capacity to learn. And we have um, a capacity to learn which is not diminished by age. We don't just learn for a very short, action-packed period in our early life. We can learn and we can change throughout our lives. Right to the very end of our lives, we still have that capacity. Now, the, the view, the vision of humanity in the various religious traditions varies some way. Most religious traditions look upon human beings as rather weak creatures who can only find true salvation in dependence on some supernatural power. And so those religions stress rituals and prayers and so on. 
the, the Buddhist tradition um, accepts that generally we are rather weak and indulgent creatures, probably a lot more so than we would like to acknowledge, but that we don't have to be that way. That we all, man and woman, and wherever country we come from, whatever part of the world, we have within us uh, the capacity to realize liberation. And so the path from the uneducated, untrained state to the enlightened state, this is where we find the core teachings of the Buddha. And so I would like to characterize the Buddhist teachings, Buddhist sasana, or the Buddhist religion, as the most brilliant and comprehensive, superb education system that the world has ever seen. So, um, most of the major religious traditions, particularly those that grew up in the Middle East, or what we call the great faiths, those religions, I would say, are essentially belief systems. And if we group Buddhism with those uh, religions, and many people refer to the Buddhist faith, for instance, I think we make a mistake. Because Buddhism is not a belief system, it's an education system. And so, um, in the work that um, I'm involved in, in, in Thailand, and um, the, my, my group have come with me, we feel that um, a successful education system of whatever nature, a government or a private, a, a, a primary, a middle school, upper school education, which will really um, be one that um, pro is able to produce or, or encourage truly educated uh, graduates is one which maps onto the developmental principles that guide the Buddhist teachings. And those, what are those developmental principles? Um, they tell us that um, a, a rounded and holistic, comprehensive education is one in which we educate our relationship to the material world that we live in. We educate our relationship to the social world. We educate our emotions. And most essentially, we educate our wisdom faculty. And the, of course, in a school or a college, um, we, we're not trying to create a, a quasi or um, a form of monastery. Um, but just as if you were learning a musical instrument, um, of a great number of people who learn to play a musical instrument, only a very uh, small minority would eventually go on to become a concert 
um, pianist or a great um, internationally acclaimed musician. But at the beginning of the training in music, um, one who is going on to become a great maestro, one who is going on to become an amateur musician who plays for his own, her own enjoyment and that of family and friends, they follow the same initial training. The same basic principles are involved. And I think there has been a tendency to um, elevate certain aspects of education um, to the expense of some others which are equally and perhaps even more important. There, is a, there was a famous um, uh, series of experiments really um, done many years ago now um, in America and um, it's referred to as the cookie test cookies or biscuits and children of four years of age were given um, a dilemma that is to say a child is in a room with a teacher and the teacher says here is a here is a cookie a delicious biscuit it's for you you can eat it I am going out of the room I uh, have some business to do, I'll be away for about 10 minutes. And when I come back, if you still have your cookie, I'll give you a second one. But if you eat it before I get back, you won't get the second one, that's all you'll get. So you can imagine the child was um, somewhat conflicted because he really or she really wanted to eat this cookie. But one uh, intelligent uh, part of the mind was saying, just restrain your desire, be patient. Just bear with this unpleasant feeling for a while, because then you'll get a bonus biscuit. And some of the children closed their eyes so they wouldn't see the biscuit, and some of them hid it underneath the seat, and some of them walked up and down, and of course some of them just couldn't resist it, they just let the biscuit down. Even though they wanted a second one, they couldn't resist it. Now these same children were also tested for their IQ level. And these the children were tracked over subsequent years until um, the first um, really interesting point was when they took their university entrance exams, those were the SAT exams. And then these um, scientists correlated the, their IQ at age four and their academic success at the age of 17 or 18 and also correlated their ability to control or to restrain their impulses, their ability to be patient at the age of four and their academic success. And what they found is there was no correlation between IQ and at four, an academic success at 17. And this, um, and uh, the studies following um, children throughout their education and through their later life and careers, uh, over many, uh, many, many case studies over the years, have found again and again that taking IQ in isolation um, shows 
no indication at all. It is not a predictor of any kind of success by any standard, whether it's academic success or a success in terms of um, having a, um, a good, um, loving marriage, raising children well, leading a good career. There's no connection. But what they did find was a very, very strong correlation between the ability to bear with the desire to eat a biscuit at four years old and success in almost any field that you could uh, define throughout that person's life. And it's for reasons like this that I think we can say um, our ed education systems are often rather distorted and um, do not um, take into account all of those things that affect our learning. It's not uh, merely um, a sharp mind is not enough. If you um, coming from a family which is um, an unhappy one, perhaps in which your parents argue a lot or you or perhaps even unfortunately divorce and you feel very lonely, then you will tend to put a great deal of emphasis on your friendships and your peer group. And you may find that you have to make a choice. Your peer group starts to get involved in, in drinking alcohol or taking drugs. And your intelligence tells you those are not wise things to do. But at the same time, uh, the thought of being abandoned and rejected by your peer group is stronger than your understanding that it's not a wise thing to do. And we find, don't we, over and over again how our emotions um, take over our mind. And it's as if our intelligence and our understanding and knowledge and all the things that we've learned just go out the window temporarily. So it's very easy, isn't it, to be clever and smart when there's no pressure on us. You know, when you see somebody else that's having all kinds of problems with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or at home, and we, we know exactly what they're doing wrong and we give them, give them so, much, so good advice. And it's so easy to see um, where they, you know, what mistakes they're making. But then when it's, when it's archived, we can't see that at all. And we make the very same mistakes. Um, so if uh, we are sincere in, in learning, um, we have to um, look at this whole process of learning and what it involves and what promotes learning and what undermines and hinders learning. And we begin to see that it covers every area of our life. Now the, the Buddhist teachings, if we really go to the heart of them, uh, are not so complex. They're not so complicated. There is a, a, an old story of a scholar and he was, uh, had so much faith in Buddhism 
and he wanted to gather all the most profound teachings that he could. And he traveled all over China, visiting the great masters, the great monasteries, gathering texts, studying, annotating, memorizing, discussing all these texts. And then he'd hear that uh, another hundred miles to the north, there's a great, uh, there's a great scholar, and there are, he has some special esoteric texts that are so profound, and and all kinds of initiations and special things. And, and this man, this man gets so excited, and uh, yes, now I need, uh, if I have just this one more teaching, this one more teaching, then I'll have everything worked out. And this went on for many, many years. And there was always one more teaching, one more thing to learn. And then he heard about this very eccentric master, enlightened master, who was renowned for living in a tree. Uh, he, he had rejected all the, um, uh, the comforts of living in a monastery and a very ascetic life um, way up in a tree in a very remote part of China. This, monk, this, uh, this scholar, he was so um, inspired to hear about this, this old monk. And he said, no matter how difficult it will be to get there, I must go and pay my respects and receive teachings from this monk. So with great difficulty, he traveled uh, through this very uh, rough terrain. Finally, um, he reached the tree. Um, and he saw them, the old monk up in the tree they said, um, Master, I've traveled so many months with so many hardships, so many privations to come to pay my respect and to ask you, please give me your most profound teaching. And the monk said, yes, I can do that. Don't do any evil. Uh, do good. Purify your mind. That is the most profound teaching. And you can imagine the scholar's face, you know, he's just so disappointed. He said, but Master, I learned that teaching when I was five years old. Even a primary school student knows that teaching. Um, and the Master looked at him and he said, yes, that's true. Even a primary school student has learned that teaching. But even an old man of 80 like myself finds it difficult to practice. And I think this is um, a, a teaching and, a, um, and a, a story which is really worth remembering because um, we don't have so long to live in this world, do we? We have to make choices. Um, and there is so much to study even within the Buddhist tradition. So many books, so many texts. Um, we could just spend all day and every day uh, reading books. Mm. But in the end, we have to have some criteria, some um, basis of, uh, to, to allow us to decide what is worth spending on our time, what is most worth spending our time given that we don't know how much longer we're going to be in this world. And this is what makes things begin to become a lot clearer. 
And my teacher said, if you are uh, pursuing a path through a very dense jungle, you don't have to clear all the trees. You just clear the trees along the path that you're going to walk. So why would you clear all the trees on either side? And so we need to find some clear goal for ourselves in this way. Now, one of the uh, most vague words, and one of those words that we use every day without often realizing that we haven't really understood what it means, is good. Another one is bad. Yeah, so what is, what is good? What is bad? Who decides? Some people will say there's no stand, there's no universal standard of good and bad. It's just what each culture, each society, each religion decides upon. It's it's a created um, artificial standard, and you can't compare them. Um, if this society is is happy with that idea of goodness, that that's that's their right, that's their business. Who so are you to tell them that your idea of good is better than theirs? This is a very prevalent idea in, in the Western world. But it is, do we agree with that or not? Um, so, when you say all religions teach us to be good, does that really mean anything? Is that a meaningful statement or not? Um, I think if you were studying to be a, um, a bank robber, you know, if you, if you were to um, rob banks and get away without getting caught, then you'd probably be called a good bank robber. So, you know, you can be good and good at things. Oh, but but what, does, what do we really mean when we say that? So I think that um, a very um, simple way of approaching this problem is we have to ask ourselves, what do we think is the best? And when we have an idea which we are happy with of what is the best, then we say, for us, the good is whatever takes us a little bit closer towards the best. Okay, so in Buddhism, what is the best? Now, it's a famous um, teaching given by the Lord Buddha, in which he said, just as the water in all the seas, all the oceans of the world, has the same taste, that salty taste, Similarly, every one of the Buddha's teachings, an authentic Buddhist teaching, it must have a taste of liberation. So, liberation from what? Well, liberation from suffering in all of its manifestations and the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is greed, hatred, delusion, all the defilements, all the um, negative emotions which cloud our minds, obscure the truth within our minds. So from here we have uh, quite a simple and straightforward um, uh, standard now. We say that whatever society might say, whatever our friends might say, whatever is the generally agreed idea, we have an internal standard now that 
if in any way we act, we speak, or we think about something in such a way as to increase the power of greed, anger, and delusion in our mind, then for us that is bad. And for anything that weakens the power of those negative emotions and strengthens the power of wisdom and compassion and kindness in our minds, then that is good. So, um, you see things start to, very complicated things can now start to become a little bit clearer. But of course we have a, a very big problem that it's very difficult to be honest with ourselves or to recognize these qualities within ourselves. For this reason we have to learn to look within and we have to um, use the Buddha's teachings as tools to help us to abandon the bad, the evil, or the negative qualities, and develop the positive qualities um, by um, looking on, as they say, looking on the Buddhist teachings as tools, not as things to worship or to believe in, but as practical techniques and tools, and we call skillful means or upaya, to deal with our experience in life. But before we do that, we have to um, enter, this is what we call the Buddha's education. So where does the Buddha's education take place? Well, we say within our hearts and minds, within our bodies. But um, another way of saying this is the present moment. So there are many spiritual teachings around these days that say you should be in the present moment as if that was a goal in itself. But uh, in Buddhist teaching, we say that uh, being able to um, dwell in the present moment is the precondition for education, true education to take place. When you really know what's what. Um, if you cannot establish attention and be awake and aware consistently in the present moment, you're always in the realm of memory or thought and imagination. When you develop uh, ability to be in the present moment, in other words, to use another idiom, when you can lengthen your attention span, then you learn, you're learning all the time. You're learning about what works and what doesn't work. And you're not just believing the words of others or following theories and philosophies, you're putting it to the test. Now, um, one, uh, one basic religious or Buddhist teaching um, is concerned with giving. Let me, let me just um, approach this subject from from, from a tangent, from an angle here, say that spiritual development, development of this education process 
is, is founded upon self-respect. You're only going to be really willing to make the sacrifices and put the effort in when you respect yourself and you love yourself and you think you're worthy to um, reap the benefits of this practice. So how, how do you, how do you, if you don't have that kind of self-respect and you don't have that positive view of yourself, what do you do? Can you do anything? And the Buddha's answer, um, first of all, is to be generous, to give, to take joy in giving. Now, um, I um, have lived in the forests and jungles of Northeast Thailand for many, many years. And when I first went to Thailand in 1978, uh, it was very backward. Um, uh, we didn't have electricity or um, any of the modern conveniences. And the people who supported our monastery were very, very poor. But in Northeast Thailand, the uh, rice farmers get up very early in the morning and the first thing they do is they cook some rice. And then, just as uh, dawn passes, maybe 6.30 in the morning, then the monks will arrive from the monastery. So for us, after our morning service, about 5.30, uh, we start walking out of the monastery, uh, through the countryside, with our bowls, our alms bowls, uh, to receive uh, daily food offerings. And people will um, uh, be waiting for us when we arrive in the village because everybody knows what time the monks arrive. And they will all have their, uh, they will be standing outside their front gates and there will be a chance to say good morning to their next door neighbour. Um, and many of them will bring uh, their sons or daughters or grandsons and granddaughters out with them to learn how to and make offerings to the monks. Now, as I said, particularly uh, when I was first going on arms round, all those years ago, um, the, the people had very little um, to share, and we would very rarely get anything other than rice. Sometimes uh, get bananas or dried fish or some, some very basic um, thing. But generally it was rice, and we have sticky rice. I don't know if anybody has seen sticky rice, so you have it here. We have like a, people would have a plate and a, and a bowl of sticky rice, and then they would see how many monks come today, say four or five monks, and they would divide their lump of sticky rice into four lumps or five lumps. So you just have a little lump of sticky rice, and they would squat down and put the food in the bowl. And for us, if you have maybe 50 or 60 small lumps of sticky rice, you have a big lump of sticky rice. It's more, and we only eat one meal a day, so we can eat quite a lot of sticky rice. And, um, but one of the things that I, you know, I, I've considered is, is that um, even the poorest person in a peasant farming community in Northeast Thailand 30 years ago could spare, although they didn't have cash, it wasn't a cash economy in those days, they all, they all had rice, and everyone could afford that much sticky rice every day. But putting the rice in the monk's bowl 
um, those people had this great sense of pride and that they were participating in the in, uh, in the life of the monks and the spiritual striving of the monks uh, and they felt good about themselves that they made a difference they were contributing to something that they valued and for me this is every time you give something even if it's a, just a small lump of sticky rice anything at all you are proving to yourself that you can make a change in this world you can reduce the amount of suffering in the lives of those around you even if it's just a little bit and you can increase the happiness of others through your gift even if it's just a little bit so you're reminding yourself and proving yourself that you can be a positive force in this world through your act of giving and so generosity and that taking joy in giving and sharing is considered the fundamental, the basic element of education um, as a human being and following on the path which culminates in enlightenment and um, that joy in giving is something which nobody can take away from you and as I say even if you don't have much money you know, this the joy in giving is not related to the amount that you give it's the purity of your heart the devotion the sacrifice you make um, and you can see that for yourself can't you so when I'm talking about being in the present moment I'm saying this is how you prove these things now I've offered you an insight or a, an opinion of mine which I'm not saying you should believe because I'm a Buddhist monk and you're Buddhist I'm saying is that true have you seen that in yourself have you seen the beauty of giving have you experienced it do you value it in your life? Do you try to promote it in your life? Do you try to encourage it in those around you? Now, um, there is a, also a teaching that when you give um, without expectation of reward, you make more merit than if you give with expectation of reward. So again, this is not a, you know, a philosophical statement. It's something that you can see for yourself. Now this word see for yourself um, is a very important word because the Buddha um, spoke of his teachings and he, he referred to them in many ways. One of the ways he said, this is a Ehipasika teaching. And Ehipasika means come and see, put it to the test, try it out. The Buddha didn't praise people who believed in his teachings because the Buddha was teaching them. He said, I give you permission, absolutely, I want you to try, try this out. So in, in many religions that emphasize faith, doubt is an enemy. People are very afraid of being pulled into doubt. But in Buddhism we say, yes, if you have a reasonable doubt, you ask, you, dis you look into it, and don't think that you're being disrespectful 
Um, the questioning is not disrespectful, but how you ask the question may be disrespectful. So how can you ask in a respectful way when you don't understand? So why is there all these rituals? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? That's a very good question. And the Buddha would say, yes, that's a good question. You should ask that. Um, if everything is within us um, and if spiritual life is developed through the heart and the mind, then why do we bow to Buddha images? Why, why do we do that? Very good question. And it's one that we need to ask. You know, If we, um, as Buddhists, we just say, don't ask about that. You know, that's not... Don't just shut your mind to that. Don't doubt. Just, just do it. That's not... You may be performing Buddhist actions, but at the moment your mind is not Buddhist because you're not doing it with that quest for truth and liberation. And so many of the, uh, almost all of the external forms um, that can seem quite confusing are all based upon uh, very wise principles um, if we take the trouble to discover them. The, for instance, with the Buddha images, the, the teachings and the qualities that we revere as Buddhists, wisdom, peace, compassion, we can't see them with our naked eyes. They're abstract. And so the great teachers of the past have said, let's make a form. We make it out of wood or out of stone or out of clay and try and make that form one which brings to mind, which expresses in a very sublime way, uh, which enables us to remind ourselves and wake up to our goals and our ideals and the most beautiful and noble qualities in human life. And so, um, if just caught up in our daily worries and concerns and, and petty uh, arguments and so on, when we look up and then see, we see that huge Buddha on the hill when we walk out of the building, you know, it, that's a wonderful thing because you can use that as a spiritual tool just to wake yourself up. What is that Buddha expressing? And how am I acting? How am I living my life right now? Is it in harmony with the principles that I see expressed so beautifully in that large Buddha on the mountain or not? So you're waking up. You're waking up to what's going on with a Buddha image um, as a tool to be used. So, so we're asking the discovery. So the Buddha says, if you give without expectation of reward, you make more merit than if you have expectation of reward. Well, what does that mean? Is that true? So we look at our own experience. And I think we've all of us given both in both ways, haven't we? But you look, um, if in the past you, you did something for someone else, some kind action, but you did it because you wanted something, some favour, or you wanted to be praised or respected or loved or you wanted to create some kind of image for yourself or so on, then now when you um, remember that act of giving, how do you feel? I think, for me, I just feel kind of uh, nothing, or if I feel 
anything, maybe a little bit embarrassed, not something I would like to um, talk about very much. Um, but on those occasions where um, I have, I've given things without any expectation of reward, um, even if that took place 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the moment I remember that act of kindness and generosity, I just have this warm, bright feeling in my heart. And do you, do you have that? Have you ever felt that when you think, yes, you really did that? You didn't do it for any selfish purpose. You just did it because you just felt you want, you were, you felt sorry for some, you felt compassion, or you really wanted them to be happy. And their happiness at that time was more important than your own comfort and your own, your own pleasure or happiness. So this, I'm saying, observation, being able to turn the light within, being able to be in the present moment long enough and consistently enough to be able to see the way that things condition each other and the causes and effects of our actions and thoughts and emotions. This is where we start to become firmly um, established on the path. I'll tell you another story. Um, the story concerns a monk who was walking uh, to a holy mountain. So this you can, I'm sure, imagine this is a kind of a symbolic story. And he was walking, he started to worry whether he, uh, he was going the right way and how long it would take him to get there. And he passed an old lady sitting by the side of the road. And he said, Grandmother, how long will it take him to get to the mountain? And she sat there and she didn't reply. She was sitting on the ground, she was knitting or doing something, and she just ignored him. I said, Grandmother, excuse me, how long will it take me to get to that mountain? And she just ignored him. So she, he started to think maybe she's dead. I said, Grandmother, Grandmother, how long will it take me to get to the mountain? And she didn't answer. So he just, he gave up and he was walking along. And after he'd been walking for uh, a few meters, uh, she shouted out, about three days, and he turned around and said, Grandmother, why, why, why didn't you answer me just now? He said, well, I, I couldn't answer just now. I had to watch you first and see how determined you were and how fast you were walking. So, you know, whenever we embark on a, on a path, you know, we always have this, don't we? How much longer? When will I get there? How will I know? You see, um, but it depends on the effort that you put in. I don't know if any of you are familiar with um, a modern American thinker, writer um, called Malcolm Gladwell. He's written a number of very good books, one uh, well-known called The Tipping Point, and there are a number of uh, other books. Um, I think he has uh, a website, you can read some of his stuff. Um, very, very stimulating. 
And he, he wrote a book a year or two ago called Outliers. And this book deals with people who are particularly gifted and successful in their fields, like geniuses, if you like, and, and, um, and it's a, a study of people who are very good at different things, very skillful and successful. And he recounts in one chapter of this book that um, the science, social scientists went to a, a leading music school in America. I don't know, I can't remember which one, whether it was Juilliard or one of the very top musical schools. And of course, they, they had to be um, um, pretty well, um, quite good musicians even to get into the school in the first place. But they divided these pupils into three groups. The really top group, the middle group, and the lower group, according to ability. And what they wanted to find out was the relationship between um, ability, like inherent ability, and effort, and practice. And I think many of us will, will probably assume that people just have a natural gift. They don't need to practice so much as the people who are not so gifted. But this study uh, and many and other studies have shown the same thing. It was exactly the opposite. The most gifted musician, musical students practice the most, many hours a day. And uh, they came up with a, um, uh, a principle, and it's called 10,000 hour principle. It means in whatever um, area of life, if you want to be excellent in that, you should be willing to invest 10,000 hours. And not just, you know, any kind of hours, it means 10,000 hours of effort. So, um, you know, on, in, in meditation, you know, some people say, ah, oh, it's just, I, I, give, I gave that a try in meditation, you know, I did that, and I did, and, uh, you know, five minutes here, five minutes there, and some days I did ten minutes, and, um, but I didn't get anywhere, I think this lifetime I probably don't have the capacity to do that. Um, so, uh, saying to realize spiritual liberation, liberation is the most difficult, most challenging thing um, that anyone could do. So if learning to play the piano excellently takes 10,000 hours, um, you know, certainly uh, learning meditation is, is not going to take less than that. Um, but it is so worth doing um, because if we don't really apply effort to the mind, and there are four kinds of effort here that we make use of. First kind of effort is the effort to protect the mind from negative emotions. Now, we'll never be completely successful at that unless we're enlightened, on an enlightened state. So we also have to have, to make the effort to reduce and to eliminate the negative emotions that have arisen. We need to put effort into bringing into the mind, to uh, creating good qualities, wholesome qualities that have not yet arisen, 
Unfortunately, we can't just uh, sit back on our laurels and we have to be constantly caring for and developing those good qualities more and more. Contentment is um, a Buddhist uh, virtue, but the Buddha also taught us to be discontent. When the Buddha was asked, before your enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in India, what do you think were the two, can you give me the, the main, the sort of primary conditions, the, the practices, the things that you say, these were what really resulted in my enlightenment. Um, and the Buddha said, uh, constant, uninterrupted practice, and secondly, discontent with the results of my practice so far. That's to say, the Buddha never said, this is good enough. The Buddha was always moving forward, moving onwards, moving onwards, never saying, no, because before the Buddha became enlightened, he must have been so peaceful already, compared with any of us. His mind was already so elevated, and it's one of the most marvelous things about the Buddha, that when his mind was so refined and so developed, yet still something within him said, no, I still need, there's still something more. So, um, Buddha teaches both contentment and discontent. With the material things, our question should always be, how much is enough? Uh, in terms of our clothing and food and shelter and medicines and enjoyments and technologies, this is the question that we need to be asking all the time. We don't just say, more is better, um, or the upgrade is better than the previous version. We say, what is enough? So, how do you decide? What does that mean? You know, everyone will say, well, um, say, most people will say, well, just a little bit more than this is enough. Um, John Rockefeller, the great multi-millionaires of the early 20th century, um, every bit as um, uh, rich and powerful as Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or any of these people are today, he was asked, you've got so many millions and millions and millions of dollars, you know, how much, for you, how much is enough? And do you know his answer? He said, a little bit more than this. So, you know, there isn't a point where you can say, now I've got this much, it's enough. You can only answer that question enough when you go back to the point again of what is the best, what is your goal? So enough is the level at which it is um, most supportive of your, your true path in life and the, uh, the efforts to attain the best. So if you, if you start to um, say, I want a life in which I experience true inner peace and uh, wisdom and compassion and a life in which I can experience happiness for myself and I can share happiness with others, where I can um, lead a useful life and one in which I can contribute to my family and my community and society. Then we look back to how much money do I need in order to um, lead that kind of life or to promote 
those kinds of qualities. See, that, that's how we make those kinds of decisions. So, uh, the Buddhist teaching is then this effort to reduce the amount of negative emotions, to increase, to cultivate the positive emotions, and to purify, and to uh, lead the mind to inner freedom and liberation. So, practicing Buddhism and studying Buddhism doesn't mean you have to go to a monastery, or you have to become a monk, or you have to become a nun, but you can be doing this anywhere, all the time. If you're someone who loses your temper very easily, yes, then think, uh, how can I have victory over that? How can I be free of that um, tendency to lose my temper? When you get very jealous of people, or she's so much more beautiful than I am, or she's got so much more of this or that, or he's so much a better sportsman than I am. There's always people who are better at you than you are, or, or more beautiful, or more handsome than you are. There's always somebody to, to make you feel jealous. But do you, have, do you want jealousy as part of your life or not? Are you happy to spend the rest of your life as a jealous person? Because it's your choice. You don't have to. It's not something that's fixed in your genes or your, in your DNA. All, all there is are habits and accumulations and things that you have chosen again and again and again to identify with. And just as you have educated yourself to be jealous, this is a miseducation, you can educate yourself out of jealousy if you understand the nature of jealousy and you don't um, promote the causes and conditions for jealousy and you uh, cultivate the causes and conditions for sympathetic joy and appreciation of others' goodness and happiness. So there's nothing within us that's not workable. Uh, we can learn, we can transform ourselves if we follow the correct procedures. It's not something that just happens through wishful thinking. Um, it's something that needs to be approached systematically and consistently throughout our lives. But with every step of the way, and you see, yeah, the Buddha is it's true what the Buddha said, that's it's right. If I do this, then it has that consequence. If I do that, it has that. We don't have to talk about what happens after you die, whether you go to heaven, go to hell. You have to see in your daily life um, how the quality of your actions affects the quality of your life. So, um, I would like to offer this um, discourse uh, for you today. I uh, hope it's been of some benefit to you. And now I'd like to uh, offer the uh, opportunity for anyone to ask questions, either about some of the things I've been speaking about um, this afternoon, or on any other subject, or if you've had anything you would like to teach me, I, I would really like that because uh, it's been it's very imbalanced the last few days. I've just been teaching other people, not many people teaching me. So um, if you have anything you'd like to tell me, please, uh, you can do that. Please. For myself, I have one question. Because I happened to read in one of the books, uh, the person who had edited the book said, Buddhism had been rejected in the land of its birth, like Christ had been rejected in the land of his birth. 
And I found the comparison very inept. Though in India we are not Buddhists, we have not rejected Buddha or Buddhism. But what is your idea? Why did no Buddhism become a mainstay of Indian religion as it has spread in the eastern part of the world? Yeah, that's a very uh, complex um, topic, isn't it? One that's um, subject to many uh, different theories and interpretations, and, and um, you know, I, I don't have um, much more than some of some of the, the the reasons that make sense to me. Um, one of them, let's not forget that. Um, Buddhism was uh, extremely successful in India. I mean, it survived and flourished in India for a thousand years, which is, you know, no no mean feat. Um, the I think that um, the revival of the Brahminist tradition particularly following um, the teachings of Shankaracharya, in which he um, adapted um, the, the Brahmin tradition to absorb some of the most popular aspects of Mahayana Buddhism, which was the most popular Buddhist tradition by that time, but which preserved the, the caste system, um, was obviously very um, attractive to, to many people in that period. Um, they had um, a, a religion which has a strong monastic element is one which will always be considered rather threatening um, to certain um, parts of society. The, the the invasion of, of the, um, the Turkmen Muslims was, of course, the death knell of, uh, of Buddhism in India. But I think there's a lot of evidence that it was uh, had already declined for a number of reasons before that. But the um, if we read the accounts of the depredations of, of the Muslims, say so in Nalanda University, which was uh, you know, one of the great um, universities that the world's ever seen and said that it was completely um, destroyed and a huge library there said it took three months before the flames before the fire finally went out and uh, all the monks were were slaughtered so when you had like the cream and the elite of the Buddhist society um, being slaughtered indiscriminately all of its texts being destroyed then uh, you know Buddhism never recovered um, from that. Um, but as you know, uh, in the last fifty years, uh, following the um, the Ambedkar movement, then there's been uh, a revival in India. It's a new Buddhist movement, and and so you know these things go in cycles, and um, uh, there is uh, uh, more Buddhist influence in, in India again at the present time than has been for for many generations. One of the um, 
uh, another point, um, before I, just now in my talk, I was referring to experience of, of going on arms round. And that is a, such an important part of the, um, the way the Buddha conceived a relationship between the Sangha and the lay Buddhists. Um, and as a monk, you know, um, as a mendicant monk, you get up very early in the morning, you've been chanting, meditating since maybe 3 a.m. At 5.30, you walk out into the village, it's the one time usually in the day when you leave the monastery. And as you walk into the village, um, you meet all these people waiting for you, squatting down in a very respectful way to offer you food, um, to, to help you in your life as a monk. And it's just such a wonderful teaching for a monk not to take your life for granted, always to remember that everything you have as a monk uh, is given to you. Um, in my tradition, we don't, we're very strict about not touching money, so we don't have any personal, um, if everything is, is held in common. Um, and so, as a monk myself, everything, you know, I look, this robe uh, was given to me as a gift, this was given to me as a gift, my shoes, my... Uh, I don't have a single thing in my life which, was, which is not a gift from, from somebody uh, who is trying to support me in my life. And this is uh, so important for, for monks. Monks don't get too carried away, too arrogant, and too, because they remember, I can live this life because of the kindness of others. And it said that in Nalanda University, which was kind of the, the intellectual hub of Buddhist, um, Buddhism in India in the 6th, um, 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, whatever, then the, the king has so much faith in the monks that he said, look, you know, you're wasting all this time going off walking in the village in the morning when you could be studying. Let me uh, send all the food to you. Uh, and so you have all this extra studying time. So now who can say no to the king anyway? But also for the monks will thought, well, yeah, that's cool, that's, that's good. Um, but then the relationship between the monasteries and the monks and the surrounding villages and the local communities weakened. And so uh, well, just as the monks are not getting that daily reminder of the generosity of the lay people and their responsibilities to the society at large, then also the lay people and the, are not seeing the monks, are not being inspired and uplifted by their presence and their restraint and their, um, and their peace that they carry with them. And so um, there's the, the Buddhist community starts to fall apart and less and less uh, parents want to send their their sons both become monks and nuns because then they don't have that sense of inspiration. So th this is this is one argument that one of the causes of decline was the um, the way that certain very key uh, parts of monastic life and particularly in the the, the underpinning of the uh, the sangha lay relationship. Um, was, was allowed to, to decline, setting up the causes and conditions for um, the kind of decay which was already present when the, the Muslim invaders arrived.
Thank you, Ajah. I have one question uh, with regard to uh, teachings. Um, you know, we have the, uh, the teachings on ethics, morality, we have on practice meditation, and we have the, the wisdom teachings. And uh, you don't really find, uh, I, I, my question was the role of prayer. Now, it's very clear in the eightfold part about how important meditation is to, to you know, gain control of your mind. And prayer seems something that is, uh, you know, you're appealing to a supernatural power. And I know that prayer, in our Bhutanese context, uh, people do a lot of prayer. And I just wanted to get your views on the distinction or the purpose or is it... Uh, for example, I, I just... Uh, from a personal point of view, I was having this discussion with my father, mm. for example, and he was telling me I should do this many prayers, one million, was a guru, so and so. And I was saying, I'd, uh, I think it's probably better if you spend that time meditating mm. rather than praying. Perhaps you could, uh, if, if some illumination on, on, on this issue. Yeah, of course, you know, one answer to that would be that the prayer is a form of meditation, in that if your mind is completely concentrated on your prayer, you're not thinking about this and that, and so, and so you're disciplining, you're training your mind, um, in a way. But uh, yes, this is one of the, the ways in which um, the Theravada tradition differs from the uh, Bhutanese um, tradition, in that um, the prayer is not at all emphasized, um, and, and the, um, the, the guiding idea in, in in Theravada Buddhism is um, of um, self-reliance and taking confidence that you have within yourself the capacity to um, abandon the evil and develop the good and to, um, and to develop without the need for some supernatural um, assistance. So uh, I myself, I mean, temperamentally, I'm attracted to, obviously you can see by where I chose to become a monk, but um, now when I was uh, a teenager, you know, I, I I had a principle: I never ever asked for money from my parents, um, and I wouldn't work or never ask for money from my parents, even though it would have made my life rather more comfortable in some cases. And so I'm very attracted to uh, Theravada Buddhist approach. I'm saying that even you know, if you could pray. Um, and receive um, some blessings and things, I'd rather work it out for myself because I feel so much um, more, uh, yeah, I feel pride in myself that, you know, I can work this out. And in, in let me draw an analogy here. In, uh, in, term, in Thailand, it takes quite some time to become a monk, particularly in the monastery where I was trained. But it's very easy to leave the monkhood. All I would have to say is, right now, is I'm not, I don't want to be a monk anymore, or I'm not a monk. That's it. I don't have to go through any ceremony or ritual. I just have to have one person who understands that I'm leaving, and that's it. So it's maybe it's, just, you know, different. it's very difficult to get born, but it's very easy to die. It's the same kind of thing. Um, and also, there's not really psychological pressure on you to stay as a monk. 
Meaning that if you, if someone's been a monk in Thailand, even for a few days or a few months, when they leave, they're given a lot of respect for that time they spent as a monk. Um, so it's not like a humiliation to leave either. So what that means is that given that it's so easy to leave and you can leave at any time and go back to layman, you have to be constantly re-confirming uh, to yourself your commitment. Um, and and I, um, when I first became a monk, I made a vow that I would stay for five years. And even no matter how harsh the conditions were, even if I hated every minute, I wasn't going to make a decision until five years had passed. So whenever I had some problem in my life as a young monk, my thought was, how can I deal with this? What are the causes and conditions for this? What do I need to practice in order to um, go through this? And so um, I, f I found a lot of inner strength from that. But, I had, but I'm somewhat unusual as a monk because most monks were through years of doubt. And uh, friends of mine, they, they would have similar kinds of problems but then their minds were going two ways, you know. One part of their mind is saying, how can I deal with this? What's the problem here? How can I deal with it? What practices do I need to apply? And then the other side of the mind is, let's just go home, you know, just give it up. Um, and, and so I, um, I, I felt that if we, irrespective of, let's not talk about whether there are or are not supernatural powers and deities um, who, are, who will bless us and aid us. We don't need to discuss that. The question for me is whether or not or to what extent we take advantage of that and to what extent we rely on our own resources. So I can only speak for myself that I've, I've found great strength from relying on my own resources and I'm not at all denying um, that there are um, beneficial deities and powers that can empower people, but I think for myself have made this decision. I want to, as much as possible, rely upon my own efforts. Um, and that's um, if, I'm, uh, if I have a chance to pay respects to great masters or I go to holy places, I love to bow and do devotional practices, but that's, I don't let that interfere with my basic attitude to uh, my own spiritual life is that it's my responsibility. So the Buddha was once asked, he said there are so many different spiritual teachings and so many different teachers and so many choices that we have to make in our life. Now, so how do we decide? And, and the Buddha said that in any situation, in any relationship, in any practice, your criteria is always, does the unwholesome and the negative qualities in the mind uh, increase or decrease? Do the positive qualities in the mind increase or decrease? And this is something that you can put to the test of your own experience right now. 
So we can say that if you spend time in prayer, um, and hours a day in prayer, I don't think I'm not willing to say that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying, what is the effect on your general life and the quality of your life and your inner peace and your inner wisdom? If you feel that it's something which is very nourishing and gives you great joy and, and uh, happiness in your life and makes you peaceful, and I'll say wonderful. Um, but if uh, if with you find that um, the emphasis on prayer is so much that you're not, if you just look on it like a shortcut, and you're not actually taking responsibility for dealing with the underlying causes for the suffering in your life, then I would say you have to reassess the um, the extent to which you will uh, uh, employ prayer in your spiritual life. Does that make sense? <laughs> Um, thank you for speaking here at RTC, which I find very meaningful, because uh, this space is the space of a university. It's an educational setting, and I find uh, your way of uh, looking at Buddhism to be quite revealing or refreshing, as um, you said, that Buddhism could be thought of as not as a tradition or religion, or even a faith system or a belief system, but as you say, Buddhism can be seen or thought of as education. So my question to you is, I mean, first of all, I want to thank you because it's very meaningful to me that you speak about precisely that idea of Buddhism as education in a university setting. Uh, as we think about uh, 21st century, particularly as um, how globalization and secularism, you know, bombard us with so many, I don't know, uh, consumer items and so many different kinds of ways in which we are being steered. I wonder how that in the university context that the idea of Buddhism as education can be revitalized or be vitalized or be integrated. And I wonder if you have any examples in the context of, say, Thailand or, or some other parts of the world where this may be happening. Yes, um, as briefly as I can make it, the um, the teachings of the Buddha are agreed upon, I think, also the basic teachings, the transformational teachings, um, we refer to as the Eightfold Path. And that Eightfold Path is sometimes summarized as a threefold training, or if you like, education. Um, and that is the education of sila, of conduct, and samadhi, which is the emotional training of abandonment of the negative, development of positive, and of wisdom. Now, when in Thailand, in the efforts to establish um, a form of education mapped upon that, we, we um, and I put a lot of resistance with people say, oh, you're, you're um, proposing an education system based on Sila and Samadhi and Banya, it's like, what do you want to turn my, my son or daughter into a monk or a nun? You know, this, uh, they, how are they going to survive in the 21st century and the modern world and everything? So, um, I, um, I came across um, an, uh, another teaching, also by the Buddha, in which he spoke about the same thing, 
in slightly different terms. And he talked about four kinds of cultivation. You know, it covers the same ground, um, but explained in a slightly different way. And so the first is um, the cultivation of the, the, our relationship to the material world. The second is our cultivation of our relationship to the social world. So these are the two external areas or spheres of education. And the internal is the, um, the education of the heart or the emotions and fourth, the education of wisdom. So basically all the Buddha did was he divided the first training or education into two parts. One relationship to material and one relationship to social. So um, what I'm saying is that uh, an edu rounded education must cover all the bases, those four bases. And so the first um, area, the human relationship to the material world, will begin with your relationship to your physical body. And will cover things like nutrition, and exercise, and sport, and, and so on and so forth. So how, what is the wisest way that you can live with this physical body? This is one part of, of education. And we can see with all the advance in knowledge, I think, we're, in generally speaking, we're going backwards. You know, looking in the West particularly, you've got like 50, 60% of the population are obese, and there's a huge obesity epidemic. And following in its wake now, we have an explosion of diabetes, to the extent that diabetes is going to be the number one like, health problem in the world now. And so many uh, huge problems in the world coming from uh, lifestyle, uh, rather than from um, you know, viruses and infections and so on. So this intelligent relationship to the physical body is one part of an education, a Buddhist education. Then, sort of expanding an intelligent relationship to our possessions. Um, how do we relate to um, money? How do we relate to all those things that we consider to be ours, uh, our possessions? What's a, uh, an intelligent and balanced relationship to these things? Because if you're in debt to your eyeballs, you can you can get all the initiations and all the profound teachings from all the great gurus in the world. You won't get peaceful, but you're just worried about all this money that you owe. Um, and you know, if you if you just way up there and you and you overlook you know, this basic the the fundamentals, you know, you, you're just one step forward and two steps back. And so, uh, also, how do we relate to modern technology? How do we relate to mobile phones and texting? and Facebook, and computers, internet. Um, you know, if we, if we don't have an intelligent relationship to those things, then, you know, we see very easily the, all the dangers and the, the problems that arise. And going for, from, from that onwards to our relationship to the physical environment and the world in which we live. So that's one area of education. So all the various physical sciences would uh, uh, the academic subjects dealing with the, the physical world would all be in, in, included in that area of education. The second area is, is uh, our relationship to the social world. Um, before when I distinguished Buddhism as being an education system rather than uh, a belief system, morality is, is a very good example of, of how that works in, in practice. In, in belief systems, you have the idea of the deity lays down 
commandments, and is reinforced by uh, reward and punishment. Uh, if you keep all these rules, you'll go to heaven. If you don't, go to hell. Um, in, uh, and then you have a problem if you get a society that's become increasingly secular, and you don't, a lot of people don't believe in God. Um, then you know where do these rules come from? If there's no where you actually laid them down, so you have these kinds of um, attendant problems. We see, but in in in, in Buddhist tradition. Uh, ethics and morality is a form of education. It's an education of our conduct. It's a training of the way we relate to the people around us and the way that we relate to um, society in general. And it's not that, as, as uh, many traditional accounts would, would uh, suggest, that ethics and morality is the prerequisite for meditation, but it is a form of meditation. So, how do you develop this present moment awareness? How can you be mindful and awake in daily life? And the uh, point here is that mindfulness, um, or sati, as we say in Pali, means recollection. You always have to be mindful of something. You can't, there's not just this floating quality of awareness that you possess. You always have to have a, a peg for mindfulness. So in your daily life, your pegs for mindfulness, that which keep you grounded and prevent you from completely losing it, are precepts. So you take on these precepts as pegs for mindfulness. So they are medita meditative tools, if you like. So you're in, a, um, you're in a kind of a pressure situation, or you're tired, or you're, you know, so much going on, um, and then, let's say, in time we've got mosquitoes, maybe not so much here, mosquitoes are going to bite you. If you follow this sort of automatic pilot um, uh, mode of existence, that most people do, you know, you slap the mosquito before you even realize. Why? Because it's irritating. Um, so, so much of our actions, that, you know, there's no awareness, freedom, responsibility there. We're just doing things we've always done. But having taken on that precept, then, okay, you're just about to suck a mosquito, and then, oh, that's breaking my precept. Now, that's a very interesting moment, because you've woken up. You've woken up to the consequences, the implication, the meaning of what you're doing. You've woken up from automatic, thoughtless action, and the moment that you wake up and you stop, then all these questions, do I want to do this or not? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it skillful, unskillful? All these very pertinent and useful questions pop up in the mind because you stopped, because your recollection of the precept has arisen in your mind. So you've, you've awoken uh, on the level of conduct. So all these, all these precepts um, are methods to ground us, to train us, to bring us back to the present moment, to allow us to align our conduct with our ideals. So, um, in the education of our relationship to the material world, we're using precepts as tools. And, and one of the defining characteristics of, of Buddhist morality, it has to be voluntary. Um, if you're just um, not doing certain things because you're afraid of punishment or criticism, then that has a, certainly has a social value. 
But in terms of this Buddhist education, nothing's really happening. Because you have, it has to come from you. You have to see the value of it. You have to have that commitment to it. Um, and you want to train yourself. You want to refine your conduct and purify your conduct. So, um, teaching this uh, kind of approach to morality in the schools, I think we teach these children and say, this, these standards in the school, the rules, the, the regulations, these, this is not the teachers and the, or, or me telling you, you've got to do this. This is your uh, this is your precepts. If you want, what do you want? How do you want to live together? If you want to live together in harmony, to have a sense of safety and security and warmth and trust, we have to have certain agreed boundaries of conduct which we will sign up for. So, if there's a problem, a behavioural problem in the class, it's not the teacher's problem; it's your problem, because your quality of life and your your trust levels and your uh, your harmony and happiness as a group is being affected and it's number one it's your job to sort this out don't think that this is something that um, you know we've come up with and we're just um, trying to control you and we'll punish you if you don't do this and we'll reward you if you don't there may well be some rewards and punishments involved but um, fundamentally it's your morality uh, because these are the um, uh, these are the necessary foundations for a learning environment, um, which, is, which is what we hope that you want. So teach children are taught this approach as, as part of their education. Because if you're living in an in a, a environment where you don't feel safe, or you feel oppressed, or you feel upset, you're not going to learn very well. Um, happy children learn well, they memorize well, they, they apply themselves well. Unhappy children don't. And, and agreed standards of conduct are things that make people happy and, and safe and secure. So we, we teach like this, and also part of this we're teaching communication skills, drama and role-playing, uh, development of um, empathy, um, all these um, uh, use of uh, debate, and Thai children tend to be very shy, so we have to have things to encourage them to be able to speak in public more easily. So those are the two external areas. Internally are all the, um, the, the different um, practices in order to teach children to recognize and understand the way that negative emotions, whether it's anxiety or fear and, and depression and uh, anger and all these things, how they arise, what's a skillful way of dealing with these things, what are the positive emotions and how they can be cultivated. And seeing that is not as something uh, like um, auxiliary subjects or something that's sort of not the, the heart of education, but if kids get these things in a kind of haphazard way along the way, well, great. But saying these are things that um, systematically need to be developed and to be raised up and terrified. Um, and things like patient, like we were talking earlier about patient endurance, impulse control, all these kinds of things. And seeing, having children realize how... Uh, absolutely fundamental to their long-term welfare, these qualities are. And then with the wisdom of education, it's encouraging uh, children to think and to reflect, developing uh, critical, creative thinking skills, and then applying Buddhist um, perspectives and Buddhist 
analytical tools on a, on a slightly higher level. The, the, the summit or the highest level of, of wisdom in Buddhism uh, we call Vipassana, and that's only possible in a mind which has been well-trained and tamed through meditation practice. So we're not really expecting school children to be able to um, develop that. But given, you know, there are um, regular meditation days and meditation retreats, and, and in the school holidays some of the children will uh, ordain as novices or go and live in monasteries for a while where they can experience that side um, a little bit more directly and uh, fully than the school can provide. But that, that's the way, say, like a, uh, an education system, primary or, or upper school or uh, even college education, can retain all of its academic um, integrity, but yet be mapped upon and, and expanded um, in a way which in, in, encompasses the whole of the Buddhist developmental model. Any last question? Yes, maybe some of the students. Thinking positive or being realistic? Thinking positive or being Like for example, uh, thinking positive won't help us if, uh, if you are foolish with money yeah. and ongoing births. Nor will it help those uh, uh, innocent victims killed. So, what's more important? Um, I don't think it's an either-or. Um, let, 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 let me say, perhaps, that positive thinking has a role to play. Um, but it's not applicable in every situation. So, so you said positive thinking is, uh, is being realistic. Uh, well, what does being realistic mean? Are you confident that you, you know how to be realistic? What, what, does mean, what is reality anyway? So we can get into some very deep philosophical discussions on this point. But um, what I would say is that when we are, when we are in a position of um, deciding whether to do something or not, or analyzing something, positive thinking is not good. Uh, the most a uh, blatant example in recent history has been the invasion of Iraq by American government, in which they they just had this very positive thinking. We just we just conquer this country and everything will be all right. But it's incredible that they had no real plan for what they do after they took over the country. So um, we could say they were not being realistic, probably by your by your standard, but they were very positive. So. When you are going to decide whether or not to follow a particular policy, uh, you, you need more negative thinking. 
you need to be weighing up the pros and the cons and thinking short-term, long-term in quite um, uh, complex ways. But then you reach a certain point, you have to make a decision. Once you've made your decision, positive thinking is very good. You know, once you, okay, whatever happens, you can do this now. Then being positive about it gives you a lot of energy and, and, and helps you through the difficulties and the, uh, and the, um, the challenges that arise. So I think we need very different thinking skills. Sometimes we need to be quite critical and analytical um, and, as you say, realistic. And other times, being able to think in a positive way has a very good emotional result. So, uh, coming back to what we're talking about, prayer. Um, you know, so, um, I don't think you need to have um, anyone to pray to in order to, to benefit from prayer because if you're praying something, you're concentrating your mind on, on what it is that you want. So you're focusing your mind. And when your mind becomes focused and, and really intent on something, you, you feel like some very good feelings from it. So from, from, from my point of view, a lot of the value of prayer comes from the psychological effects of praying rather than the power from outside us. It's uh, responding to the prayer. The other than that, how can we, how can we explain the fact that people pray to so many different things, and they're all absolutely convinced, you know, that they've been their prayers are answered. People in Thailand sometimes pray to two mind moons, you know, and people pray to in uh, in India. I've been to places where people pray to snakes, and people pray to monkeys, and you know, um, that's. You know, everywhere in the world, um, people pray to different things. And in every case, whatever people pray to, you always find someone who will say, before I started praying to this, my life was a mess, nothing went right. And as soon as I started praying, suddenly everything went wonderful. So went, went wonderfully. So again, we have to say, well, are you being selective, you know, in, uh, in the things that you're... Uh, recognizing and making too much of this change. So long answer, but being realistic is good, but we have to recognize that it's very difficult for us to be realistic. And one of the great 20th century thinkers said that man cannot bear very much reality. Um, and so a Buddhist amendment of that would be an untrained uh, man or human being, one who hasn't trained his mind, cannot bear much reality. But the more that you train your mind, the more reality you can bear. And from bearing it, you can actually enjoy it after a while. Yeah.